Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when he had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for he was not, if for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who brought and bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you've worked in our midst already. 
We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts by your word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, and we pray, Lord, you would help us to have our hearts open for you to speak and to be willing to obey what you reveal to us, Lord. And we thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've been studying this gospel, we've seen Jesus go through his public ministry in an abbreviated form in the sense that how God has revealed everything to the gospel in Mark to us related to how concise it is. And we see the fast pace. We've seen the word immediately over and over and over. I forget how many times it appears in Mark, but things happen quickly there. And so we've seen last week where he's getting closer to Jerusalem and he was coming up to Jericho and all of those things. And they're fighting about positions. They're fighting who's going to be the greatest. The, you know, they're jockeying for position and all this. And, and Jesus has his focus on the cross and making his way to the cross. He started that direct trip uh, all the way back to Caesarea Philippi, which we see in every gospel. And so he's focusing on the cross, but he's also being who he is. You know, he's being the amazing Savior that he is, and he's uh, healing and delivering. And we saw him heal blind Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus started following him and so forth. And we've just seen him just be who he is in the context of facing that cross, knowing that sinful humanity is going to put him on that cross and so forth. And, of course, he said that no man takes my life. If I, if I lay it down, I, I'll take it up again and so forth. And so he, he was offering his life, but it, from man's perspective, he was going to be murdered. And he kept offering this warning to his disciples. He's trying to prepare them to, for his departure over and over again. And we saw last week the third time, the third direct time, and he offered much more specificity this time with talking about scourging and mocking and spitting and all this that was going to happen. And it was really starting to affect the disciples. And as they were following, following him and walking and he was ahead of them, they were afraid and all, it was uneasy and all of that. They started sensing the difference there. So now this week... Uh, he is finally reaching this area. He's finally reaching Jerusalem and, and, and nearby places. And as we get to this last part here, and as we start to get into the fur- further chapters or in the coming week or weeks, we're going to see things happen quickly. And it's important for us to know that things are not careening out of control. He is exactly in control of everything that's happening. He's the one that's leading in the situation. He's not being a victim. He is in control of all of that. We can be tempted to think that things are kind of at it. He's losing control of everything as things start to unfold, but it's not, unfold, it's not happening that way at all. He is overseeing things. He is on his agenda. He's on his time clock. You remember all the times, and we've noted it as we've gone through the gospel, this gospel, and also the gospel of Matthew, where he would tell people, do not tell anybody what happened to you. Over and over again, we saw that. And there are other times where he was, you know, he, we see him move out of Israel proper into Tyre and Sidon, up in the extreme north there. And then he went on the eastern side of the Jordan there, also outside of Israel proper there. And he's ministering in the area of the Decapolis, the area of the 10 Greek cities there. And, and he didn't want to engage them in a way to where things would happen prematurely. There's a timing for all of this, but now the timing is here, and he knows it. 
And so we're going to see him uh, walk in these things, and he's going to spend much of the week, because this is the last week of his public ministry, his last week, and, and John records basically half of the Gospel of John, as I told you, is 90% original to John, and half of the book is devoted to this last week. And especially how he ministers to his disciples, how he prepares his disciples for his departure. And we'll see it when we get to the book of John. But he is, you know, in the temple. He's confronting people. He's ministering to people. He clears out the temple again, as we'll see today. We're told in another gospel, he still heals in the temple area. And so the crowds are so huge at this point because of the Passover and all these things. And it's, 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 things are increasing in the sense of, where people are tracking with him and, and how they're following him and all of that. Um, we're told in the Gospel of John, he recently raised Lazarus from the dead. So that creates a whole thing that's, <laughs> that's happening there. Lazarus is, is following him again now. We know blind Bartimaeus is still hanging tough in the background. You know, you can see now. He followed him up to, up to Jerusalem. He's there. And so Jesus is going to minister. He's going to confront the Pharisees, as we're going to see. So he's not afraid. He was never afraid of them at all. Zero. I mean, every time that you see them try to trap him, you just walk away shaking your head from, the, you know, reading the passage going, they had no idea what they were doing. There's no way. You're not going to win an argument with God. You're not going to trap God. You know, we're told in Scripture he knows our thoughts from afar. That's a slight disadvantage when you're talking about trying to trap somebody. And, and, and so we see that over and over again. And so this is also we're going to see in our passage this morning, we're going to see the triumphant, as it's called, the triumphant entry there, or Palm Sunday. Uh, so this is a Sunday here. And notice that Jesus talks about or sends them out to get preparations in the sense of this donkey that he would ride. In verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So these two disciples likely, I believe, is probably Peter and John were told in other gospels that they were the ones that were sent out to get the preparations for the Passover and all that. But Mark gives the most detail related to this account with finding this donkey and all of that. And um, so, you know, we're, we're told that this is a very specific thing that's going on there in the scriptures. And then we're told what happens in verse 4. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they asked, and they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them Go. And this would possibly maybe a believer, a disciple who had heard of Jesus. We don't know, but he lets, lets this happen. Of course, Jesus knows all of this ahead of time. He knows all these things. And, and really, the lesson here, and, and, and it's a simple one, but it's an important one. And we could just pass over here just thinking, oh, this is just kind of setting the stage or whatever. It's a very important lesson. And I think it's this, is that simple obedience to God is very important to um, obey or, or show in our, in our daily lives. And we can question, 
Sometimes we can think, well, God doesn't really know the, all the circumstances with, related to his word and how I should speak his word in certain situations. There's so many diverse situations I'm going to find myself in. Maybe God's word won't work. <laughs> you know, and that's not true. God's word is always going to work, and it's applicable in so many different situations. And we're told, uh, to, if any man speaks, let him speak the very oracles of God. We're supposed to be having God's word on our lips because it's an overflow from our hearts and so forth. So we're need, we need to obey specific things from God. When God tells us to do something, it may seem insignificant. It may seem something that is not that important, but we don't know the full picture. We had no, they had no idea what God was doing in the, in the life of this person that offered the donkey. There's a whole backstory there. That was a life that was someone that, uh, who knows what their background was, but they had dreams. They had, if they weren't a believer yet, they hadn't come to know him yet, and so forth. And God may use this to bring them to know him, but if, but if they were a believer, obviously that would be a blessing to know that God used my donkey for the triumphant injury. That is awesome. Let me do, do a little donkey selfie, you know, <laughs> afterwards, you know. You know, and, and, and you're, you know, of course, obviously that's silly, but, you know, but it's, it's an, a great thing that you're a part of. And, and God works on all ends. We, we forget that. We don't realize that God's working in every person's life concurrently, all at the same time. So the smallest of things we can obey, God doesn't see it as something small. He sees it as something that's, in fact, we're tested the most when he tells us to do things that seem small to us because to us we measure it as something, you know, um, less than something else. And it's a, it's, a great, it's a great test for us. It's a great word for us. Verse 7. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it and many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees. John tells us that those are palm trees that they, they laid down and spread them on the road. One thing that, that isn't mentioned in Mark that is mentioned in John, and John is, I love when certain gospel writers or any writer is led to, to be humble enough to say the whole truth, even if it doesn't make you look good. But John reveals that they didn't understand what was happening here. They, hadn't, they didn't understand the connection. They didn't make the connection of what God was doing with, with this uh, triumphant entry. Again, they've been, they've been arguing about who's the greatest uh, James and John recently put their mom up to asking Jesus if they could have the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. I don't know how they worked out who would be left, who would be right, uh, but they put their mom you know, up to that, and the rest of the disciples were told by the Holy Spirit that the 10, not the 12 anymore, but the 10 were displeased greatly with that and everything. In our passage, we see that they're the 12 again, so that's good. They reconciled on that, but I don't know. But uh, it's important for us to see that they are not paying attention. They are not getting things and all of that, and, and, and John reveals that. Verse 9, then those who went before and those who followed, so picture the scene, those are moving before Jesus on this donkey, and after, they're saying these things, and they're cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's right out of Psalm 118. You can write that in your margin, unless you have an app and you can't write it down. Mm, bummer. That's why we need to have a, a book. Come on. It's great, to have a, it's great to have convenient Bible there. That's great and everything. But man, notes. God uses that greatly. 
Verse 10, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. There's probably an app that lets you write in there next to the text. Okay, yeah, yeah, don't send me an email. That comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that's part of Psalm 148. And so this triumphant entry, it's really fulfilling at least two prophecies. And it's important for us to know what that is. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel predicted by the Holy Spirit the exact day that the Messiah would be presented to Israel. That he would be cut off, we're told in Daniel chapter 9, but not for himself. And they had no idea what that meant. And there's an exact time when you get into Daniel's 70 weeks and the 63 weeks and two weeks and all this stuff, weeks of years and all of that from the time that the decree was made to rebuild the, 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 uh, the temple and the wall. From that point on, from that decree, you count so many years, I think it's 483 years, and you end up right exactly on this day. And so that's very powerful for us to know. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, then nobody's the Messiah because nobody could fulfill so many different things, you know, where he was born. I mean, there's a million of them, but especially this one, that he couldn't be the Messiah because he had to fulfill this prophecy of Daniel. Also in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we're told this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So this is prophetic here. He's fulfilling scripture. And he didn't say, okay, let's have, let's have our day planners, uh, disciples here. What did we write down? What did we plan? This is the day we're going to organize all of this and get the people to say these things on this day. He didn't have to do that. Because this is just the natural events that are occurring as a result of him, his perfect timing and all of that. Now, this portion from Psalm 118 is part of what's called the Hallel. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. And so they, would, they had these six psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, and they were called the Psalms of Ascent because as they were traveling to Jerusalem for the feast, as they were ascending up to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms, and, it was, and they were very messianic. And so I want to read a few verses from Psalm 118. It says, verse 22, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is going to come up later. Uh, but it also says, This was the Lord's doing. It was, it was marvelous in our eyes. Now this psalm, as they would sing this song, they would go back and forth. So one group would say, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Then another group would say, this, is, this was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. And then, as we say sometimes we wake up our kids, we say, This is the day that the Lord has made. And we wait for them to answer back and say, And so we will rejoice and be glad in it. But they usually don't. I don't know why. They just don't when we say that. But they're supposed to answer back if they're being biblical. And so, um, and then it continues and they go back and forth again. And it says, verse 25, save now. That's our word Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. Save now. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. It's great a prophetic scripture. He's going to be bound. And that's the place where he's going to provide salvation and forgiveness for all of us. So 
They rejoice gladly. This psalm was a, a rejoicing psalm. Sometimes we are, are think that maybe being loud at times or being demonstrative or whatever be, and showing uh, uh, emotions and all that is not spiritual. But the psalms, in, in the book of Psalms, David danced before the Lord. I mean, there was great expression in, in all of that. And it's beautiful to see when it's led by the Lord, of course, when it's not drawing attention to ourselves, all these things. It's great when we celebrate in that way and, and rejoice greatly. Verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, notice all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And I could just picture him going out of the eastern gate, the Temple Mount area was 17 acres there. And, and so he comes out the eastern gate because Bethany, the Mount of Olives, all of that faces the east. So he would come out of the eastern gate there. And the population had swelled at this point, likely to two to three million people during the feast. Normally, Jerusalem was about 500,000 people in population, but it had swelled like it normally did during the feast, probably to two to three million. And so there's all these people, and he goes out the eastern gate, does the windy road down and so forth, and then starts making his way up the Mount of Olives. And so he's going to stay in Bethany, and likely he's going to stay at the house of Mary and Martha, and, and Lazarus has already been raised from the dead. And so that would be a place of great comfort to him and great comfort to them and all of that. What a privilege to be able to say that you extended hospitality in your house to the Messiah. And you knew him that well. And he just was, it was just a great thing. Now, verse 12 told, tells us, Now the next day, that would be Monday, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, it's very possible that he was hungry, and we don't know this, but it's very possible he's hungry because we know Mar- Martha was cooking. <laughs> you know, if he stayed with them, Martha was cooking, and she was busy and all of that. It's very possible, even if they, he didn't stay with them, it's very possible he was up really early praying in a solitary uh, place. This is called the Passion Week. There's a lot going on this week. He spent, you know, time in prayer every day. It's possible maybe, you know, he, he didn't, he skipped breakfast or he was fasting We don't know what the specifics were, but he was hungry there. And so we're told there in verse 13, after we're told he was hungry, and seeing afar a fig tree having leaves. And I want to just stop there for a moment. This is a fig tree that's out. It's not in someone's orchard. This is a a random fig tree that's there. It's It's something that people would... By the road, when figs were there, they would just reach and they would eat. It was probably not planted there on purpose and all of that. And so he's walking up to this fig tree there, and we're told he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Mark's the only one that tells us that. It wasn't the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is the last of the 18 miracles that we see in Mark, apart from the resurrection there. And this is the only one that we see where it's destructive, where he's not healing, he's not restoring, he's actually destroying something. And, and so that's, it, it, it makes you wonder, what was the big deal? This wasn't the season for figs. Why was he doing that? And, and there's something greater that's going on here. We talked about this when we went through it in, in Matthew, but... There's something related to Israel here that we'll get into in a little bit. 
But he's not just being, you know, hangry or, you know, hungry or hypoglycemic and just, you know, like we do. We don't eat. How many of us here, we don't eat. That's a problem. You know, we, we, yeah, we can get weird with our blood sugar and all of that. He, he's not, that's not what's going on here. This is meaning, this is representing something greater. He's facing Israel. Israel is referred to as the fig tree all through the Old Testament. He's facing a fruitless nation. He's facing a, a nation that should have been, especially the leaders, should have been pointing people to him and should have been bearing fruit spiritually in that way, but it was barren. And there wasn't fruit. And, it, and so all these things have a deeper meaning and so forth. We'll, we'll further talk about that in a moment. Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. And when Jesus went into the temple and began to drive, uh, began to drive out those who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, this is the second time Jesus cleanses the temple. If you read John chapter 2, you'll see it, and it's obvious that it's at the beginning of his public ministry. This is at the end of his ministry. He did it twice. People say, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible, and they're comparing the two. And like, No, he did it twice. And I'm sure it needed it more than that. <laughs> but he wasn't led to do that uh, any time in between. So he did it at the beginning and, and after. And, and where this, this, what was happening is you'd have millions of people come for this feast, any of the feasts, they'd come, and they didn't want to have to bring an animal, because that's a, that's a struggle to bring an animal long distance, you're walking kind of like in caravans, so you would buy an animal to offer your sacrifice, and you didn't want to, they didn't accept foreign currency in the temple, yet there's a very specific currency that they accepted, so you had to use that, you had to exchange currency, you know, that's common today, even when you go to Israel today, you'll see signs that say, money changers, you know, and it's nothing's changed in some ways. And you just, you know, how's the exchange rate? Are you ripping people off? I'm going to turn your table over. I'm going to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do on your, you know, on your, on your, on your bracelet? No, but uh, it's the same way today. So they, this was done as a way originally, I'm sure, to serve people, to help people, but it turned into something entirely different. Caiaphas was the, high, the acting high priest at this time. We're also told in Scripture that Annas who had been the acting high priest, had been high priest before him. Annas was his father-in-law. Uh, and so Caiaphas was the acting high priest, even though they're both referred to that. And this whole thing with the temp money changers and all of that, what was going on here was directly connected to them. And they were ripping people off. It's, it, someone has said that Caiaphas probably made two to three million or the equivalent of that per year off this. And uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Annas and his sons, because Caiaphas was his son-in-law, not his son, uh, they made so much money off of this by ripping people off. And they turned worship into something where people were getting ripped off. And people know it. We know when we're getting ripped off most of the time. And so, they, it, so for God, it ruined it because they hear they're turning something that was meant to be part of worship and turn, and into a blessing, and they were turning it into something entirely different. And the temple wasn't intended for all of that. Anyway, where this was, where they were doing all of this, though, was near uh, the court of the Gentiles, which is a very important understanding what Jesus is dealing with, with all of this, with cursing with the fig tree and Israel not being fruitful and, and all of that. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple, and when he taught, saying to them, 
Then he taught, saying to them, it is, not, it, it, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Again, there were people being ripped off. The temple was supposed to be known as a house of prayer, and it turned into something entirely different. Now, the temple today, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So obviously part of the Christian life is, is having a life of prayer. And, and so much of how we represent our, the world or to the world, God and what he's done in our lives is, is being all that God's called us to be, which includes prayer. Verse 18, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city and now in the morning, that would be Tuesday, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, this is interesting because normally they would, they would a lot of times when, when a tree is, is dead or dies, a lot of times it has to do with something from the outside, like hitting the leaves or hitting the outside of the trunk or whatever, and, and coming, invading that tree and so forth, and it dies kind of from the outside in. We see this happen from the roots. It dried up. From the roots. And so, this again, this tree represented in many ways Israel. All through the Old Testament, so many times, Israel is referred to as a fig tree. And again, Israel was barren, it was fruitless. The people were not pointing to the Messiah. What, what people should have heard is the same thing that you hear from some of the disciples, or we found the Messiah, as Andrew said, and all of that. They should have been saying that. They should have been pointing to the people, and they should have said, here he is, he's here. He, finally, all of what the, Moses talked about and the prophets and all of that, he's here, let's worship him and all of that. And because of that, they would have received him in, in larger measure, and God would have changed more lives and all of that, but that did not happen. The leaders were not leading the people right. They were actually rejecting their Messiah. And one of the things that's interesting is that this whole area where all the money changers were going on, near, near where they did all that and all these animals and all of that, it was near the court of the Gentiles, as I said. And that's something that we can miss of why all of that make, all, how all of this ties together. Because if you look back... Uh, Look at verse 17. It says, Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? Notice the last three words. For all nations. See, that's where you get to see a little peek into God's heart. Because he, the Jews were so self-consumed with who they were and who their identity, what their identity was in God and how God, had, they were the chosen people and all of that. They forgot that all through the Old Testament, God was saying, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. I'm going to make you different. I'm going to show them what you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to live so that when they see your life, they're going to be attracted to me. And so it just begs the question, why did God create a court of the Gentiles in the first place. You ever asked yourself that question? Why did he do it? Because, again, he's trying to reach everybody. So you, you have the configuration of the temple and the outer, outer it went, as you get closer to the, to the uh, temple itself, there's different courts, and, and you have different levels of access. So you first had the, the, the court of the Gentiles. Then you had the court of the women that was even closer 
Then you had the court of the men. And then once you got inside the temple, you had the holy place there. That's where the table of showbread was and all the things that he had set forth for them to have inside. That is a picture and a copy of how heaven is. We're told that in Scripture. But then past this big, massive, huge curtain that was about 30 feet high and about two feet thick or three feet thick was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark and the Covenant was behind there, and only the high priest could go in there once a year, and that, after he's had a sacrifice made on his behalf, he's going to go in there once a year. And so the, the whole picture is access. How much access do you have? You ever gone to a concert? And you may have had a, back, a backstage pass. I remember when we served um, in Northern Ireland. We went on a missions trip, the School of Ministry did, to Northern Ireland. And we served at a Franklin Graham crusade. And some of the servants in our group, some of the guys, they were uh, you know, going to the serving meetings. And they, somehow they got like backstage passes. And we're you know, acting spiritual and acting like it didn't matter to us. Um, but we were like, man, why didn't we get you know, backstage passes and all that? So we were teasing them, and they said, you watch. By the end, we're going to have the, like, the real like, all-access pass and everything. And we were laughing at them, and we were saying, okay, we, you, know, you, you shouldn't care about that, but if you get it, we, we, we want it too. You know? So <laughs> help, help us. You know, um, we'll help you with your carnality back there. We'll be praying for you and all that. But we, we need to be backstage too. And so it worked out to where we had the all-access pass. All, I mean, you could, there's nowhere you couldn't go. And so we were in charge of security, which is God's grace. Uh, and so, in fact, I stopped someone, the, the equivalent in, in Northern Ireland in the worship ministry there or the worship, uh, you know, industry there, whatever you, however you want to say it. I stopped the equivalent of Stephen Curtis Chapman because she didn't have a lanyard on, you know, and um, I didn't know who she was. And she's like, do you know who I am? You know, she wasn't being prideful about it. I'm like... No, I really don't. She goes, I'm so-and-so. Oh, okay, great. You know, and I felt really dumb. But I was just following directions, okay? I was just following directions. So, so all access and everything, there's no place that we couldn't go and, and all that. And it's, it's, a great, it's a great feeling to know that you have access. Well, that's exactly what happened with the temple. Because you couldn't go past. If you were, if you were a Gentile and you went past the, the barrier to go into the area where the court of the women was that led to the court of the men and all of those things, all the way into the holy place and everything. Only the priest could go inside uh, the holy place and all of those things. If you got caught, that's the one exception that Rome made that they could do capital punishment. So they could kill you legally in Rome if you went past that barrier. And Paul talks about this in his epistles with this separation and the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one and all of that. He talks about the wall separation isn't there. That's the imagery he's, he's producing or provoking in them to see that wall that they all knew about. And so this access that's there. So why did God allow a court of the Gentiles in the first place? Why do you just have the court of the women and that's it? Because he always had a heart for everybody. He always had a heart for the Gentiles. So he allowed there to be a place where they could go, hoping that they would get close enough to what was going on, inquiring about it, and that those people that were going in would be loving and caring and all of those things, and hopefully maybe having them be a, uh, become a God-fearer or a proselyte. Or, and these are official terms for specific things related to Judaism. So that was always there. So these money changers and all the stuff that's going on, ripping people off and all of that, was near that area. So here they were ruining 
This whole thing where they were supposed to be light to the Gentiles, that's why I have the court of the Gentiles, because they were ripping people off and focused on serving themselves and getting wealthy and all those things, that it ruined it for the Gentiles because they knew it was a racket. Everybody knew it was a racket. And so, that's, and so Israel is being held accountable here related to being fruitless and barren and all these things. And it speaks to us related to our lives because this world that we go out to every day is the court of the Gentiles. It's the area that we have been called to go near and in because the, the Jews were allowed to go into the area of the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles couldn't go into the court of the women or the men or anywhere else. But they could go into that, and they would, they'd go around if they could. You know, that's not good. That's not the right heart. But we do the same, don't we, sometimes? Where we'll do anything but talk to an unbeliever sometimes about the gospel and the truth. We'll avoid those things. And he wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to be out in this court of the Gentiles, this world, and letting them see our lives be different. So they can ask questions, they can inquire. Maybe you're here today and you're new to these things and you're like, I'm just investigating and all of that. Our hope is that you would see something different in us because we don't have the capacity to change ourselves. I mean, look at the testimony that we heard. No one can change us from the inside out but God. And we see that over and over again. If you're here today and you're seeking and you're wanting to learn more and all of that, you're, you're here in a place that we know we're not going to be perfect representations at all. We don't pretend that. But we want to grow in that, and we want to continue to be a great example. So God puts Gentiles, or unbelievers, so to speak, in our lives all around us, and he calls us to be good witnesses, to be good examples, to not do things that are going to stumble them, like the money changers and all of those people were stumbling the Gentiles. He wants us to, to be bold in our faith and be great examples by his grace and by his power. So Jesus uh, is spoken to by Peter in verse 21. says, And Peter, remembering, said to him, Look, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. So he's using this now as an object lesson because Peter is impressed with this thing being cursed, that he could just speak. They'd never seen this before. This is new. They'd seen all these other things, this restorative miracles and these, you know, sight being given to people. They could, uh, deaf people could hear. You have uh, leprous people being healed and touched and cleansed. The first thing where something dies as a result of Jesus' work. And so it, he's like, no, no, I want to talk about this. What is going on here? You know, did you see this and all of that? And he says, have faith in God. So then he adds to it. Notice in verse 23. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and that, that was a, speaking to a mountain was an idiom in that day for anything that was insurmountable, that was huge and an obstacle and all of that. And we say somewhat, somewhat uh, like that in, in our vernacular. Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believing, and that's literally be believing. So it's continuous. But you can continue to believe that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe, and that is also a continuous word there, believe, meaning be believing, continuously believing, that you, that you receive them and you will have them. Now, we need to look at these verses responsibly because these verses, ironically, the very occasion where he's talking about being a bad witness to Gentiles, 
These verses are used sometimes by false teachers to try to rip people off and have them give to their ministry and all of that. Unbelievers, or Gentiles, so to speak, see this, and it misrepresents the Lord to them. The very thing that Jesus is talking about, this happens in our culture, and we see it on Christian television and other places, and, and it's just, it's not, it stumbles people, and it's wrong. Because this isn't talking about whatever I want in the sense of my fleshly desires or whatever I can ask God. God is not a lucky uh, rabbit's foot. He's not a, a genie, you know. Uh, he's not, but we think that. And, and, and people that don't know Christ and even sometimes new believers think that only good things come from God, only bad things come from Satan and all of that. There's, there's many things that come that we wouldn't consider good that God allows in our lives and, and works through those things to bring us closer to him and to be further conformed to the image of Christ, that's an expression of his love for us. And so we can't just ask for a Rolls Royce. Hey, he said it. This is getting into all this wackiness and false teaching out there. But we can't just say, I'm going to believe in my heart and not doubt. I'm going to ask for a Rolls Royce. And if God doesn't give, give it to me, then his word failed or you know something along those lines. That's not what he's talking about here. And why, how do I know that? There's a principle of Bible interpretation that says Scripture interprets Scripture. So God's not going to contradict himself. The Holy Spirit inspired this, but he also inspired other places in Scripture. And I want to read to you a verse from James chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3. It says this, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. So he tells us to ask. Of course, we need to ask. But then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So it, it, am I asking because it's an expression of my flesh and what I want and my selfishness and all of that? That's taught on TV all day, every day, on Christian television all over the world, that I need to ask whatever I want. I need to picture my dream and have the life that I think I should have, and confess that, and give to their ministry, and God will manifest all of that. But this is what the Word of God says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence we have in Him, that if we ask according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. So it has to be according to his will, and it can't be a result of my selfish desires and all of that. And really what will help us understand this is to understand he's talking to disciples here. He's talking to people that, you know, um, he, they've already died to self. They've already given their lives away. He wrote in John chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. If my words abide in you, see, his words shape our desires. As we're submitted to him as a disciple, he shapes our desires by his word. And so we're going to be asking things that line up with his word. So we're not going to be, I've yet to find the, 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 uh, the Rolls Royce or whatever in there, even in the original Pig Latin. No, I'm just kidding. But you can't see it. There's, I mean, maybe if you have, in your Bible, it has first flesh Thessalonians and it's in there. But that's not included in our, in our Bible, you know, so uh, it's, it's not there. So um, he's talking to disciples, and he says also in that same verse in John 15, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So it's, a, it's, a, it's about the kingdom. It's about things related to fruit and spiritual things and all those 
things. And, and so for us as Christians, he wants us to come to him. And, and I don't want to take away from the boldness that he, he wants us to have in approaching him and asking for things in prayer. If we're asking something that has nothing to do with our selfish desires, if we're asking as a result of something that's in his word, he wants us to believe when we ask and have faith that he's going to do that thing. And, and thank him in advance that he's going to do it. That's the kind of faith he's talking about. Just because there's abuse to this doesn't mean there's a right interpretation related to having boldness and believing we've received things already, even though we haven't seen it yet. He wants us to live by faith. He's called us to live by faith. But we have to be careful what we ask for, how we ask, and if it's a result of something that he has put on our hearts. But he's a loving father, and he wants to bless his children. It's beautiful. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your, heaven, your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is a strong statement. I'm not going to try to say it means something it doesn't. He's saying if you don't forgive, and, and I believe when you truly have been forgiven, truly been forgiven you recognize and there's whole parables that jesus offers about debts and the you know being forgiven of a massive debt and then then not being uh letting someone off the hook for something way less than that and and you see his anger you see his his he doesn't put up with that at all and so we've been forgiven so much we have no right to not forgive somebody zero right doesn't mean that you're they have to be trusted again there's a difference between trust and forgiveness you don't have to place yourself in a position where you could get hurt to the extent that you were. You don't have to do that. You can be in 100% forgiveness of someone and, and not trust them at all. And maybe the trust will come back as they repent and all those things. But he has a very low tolerance for unforgiveness in his people. Very low threshold for that. Verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. This could have included Joseph of Arimathea. This could have included Nicodemus. This probably, Saul of Tarsus is probably in this group. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and all of those things. He's probably there. They come to, to, uh, to deal, to try to, to, to trap him. And he says, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question then. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This back and forth with them was not unusual. Rabbis, when they debated, they would do this type of thing back and forth. It was like a chess match. They would say one thing. If I say this, then you got to tell me this. And then they would answer and say, I'll answer this, but you got to tell me this. So this is not abnormal what he's doing, but you're not going to ever win with, with the Lord Jesus. Uh, so verse 30, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reason among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to, to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these. Now what's interesting is that for a rabbi to say, I don't know, was so rare. It's basically your, it's a self-admission that you're incompetent. By saying you don't know something. No one ever went to the rabbis. You've heard this saying, you know, uh, two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> you know, but rabbis, you know, rabbis were so looked to with respect and they studied so much. They always had an answer, whether it was right or not, <laughs> you know. And for them to say we don't know is striking. 
that they'd be willing to do this. But notice he says, neither will I tell you. He says, neither will I tell you. He's saying they're refusing to, to say the answer, the true answer, because they, he knows that there's implications, and they know there's implications for, for that answer. And he's saying, basically he's saying, the same authority that, G, that John the Baptist had in his baptism, I have that authority as well. It's from God. It's from God. And so I'm not going to, you know, entertain this, and you can't be honest. I'm not going to be forthright with these things because you're, you're just playing a game here. So checkmate for sure. So as we close, the worship of the Messiah. Beautiful to see that Jesus got this worship, right? He deserved all of this worship and more. And here he is receiving that worship. It's beautiful. He's going to weep over the city, we'll see in the, in the Gospel of John. But he's worthy of that worship. He wanted to gather them as a, as a hen gathers their chicks. And, and, and he loved them so much, but it's, he said, but, they, but you would not believe. It's not that they couldn't. They wouldn't believe, and it broke his heart. But to see them worship him, these are the very same people that are going to say crucify him. Completely fickle, completely not loyal like you would hope that, that he would deserve and so forth. Also, in closing, the great um, example uh, that he wants to have wor- worked through our lives related to these Gentiles, these unbelievers that are around us, to be a good example for them, to be a good example of what someone looks like that loves God, to be someone that leads by example. So that they look at our lives and say, there's something different about them. I don't know what it is, but I want to be around them more. I want to find out what it is. And and then they come to know Christ. He wants to use us in that way. And then lastly, the importance of forgiveness. Is there someone here that is in your mind right now? You know you haven't forgiven them. You need to do it. You need to forgive them. And I know that forgiveness is a process. And you can say, I don't, I, you don't understand what they did to me. But God does. He didn't give escape clauses or exceptions to this. He says, forgive. If anybody had a, a reason to not forgive, it would have been Jesus on that cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we're supposed to lead by example. We have no business not forgiving whatsoever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for how you're working in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would use these verses to make us better disciples. Help us to be a light. Help us to be salt and light and not hide our light from this world. Help us to be bold. We pray that there would be so many more testimonies that we hear as a result of us stepping out and obeying your great commission. Help us, Lord, to not be inward-focused at all. Lord, you call us to serve you and to be a witness for you and be used by you in great times of difficulty and hardship and tribulation, God. But that just makes people see you because they know it couldn't be from us. So I pray, Lord, for anyone here that's holding back that they would would serve in the way that you've called them to serve, God. And as we continue an attitude of prayer, I want to ask if there's anybody here, Christians, could you pray right now? If there's anybody here, you know that you need to receive Christ. You saw that, that testimony of Melissa's and You know that you need that. You need your sins forgiven. And let me explain to you what that means. It means that you recognize that you're a sinner, that you've been less than perfect, that you can't earn your way to heaven, you can't be religious enough, you can't do enough good works to outdo all your sin, and you know that now. For the first time, you finally get it, that you can't earn your way to heaven. You may have believed in God up to this point. You may have gone to church. You may have been religious. 
but you've never repented. You've never made a U-turn in the road of life, said you're sorry to God for the way that you've lived, but more than that, that you haven't turned and turned to him and surrendered your life to him. He wants to offer you salvation as a free gift. You can't earn it. If you offer somebody money for something that they intend to be a gift, not only is it offensive to them, but it ceases to be a gift. It's Now it's a payment. And now that you understand now that salvation is a gift and you just have to receive it, I want to give you an opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift right now by, by praying a prayer after me, me leading you in a prayer to receive him. You're not joining this church. God may send you to an entirely different church. That's none of our business. That's not our agenda. But if this is your day and you've never received Christ, you've never surrendered your life where it never clicked, you never understood it till now, even though maybe you thought you were, but you know this is your day. You know that he is knocking on the door of your heart. He wants to come in. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you the gift of eternal life. You understand it now for the first time. You want to follow Jesus with all of your heart. You want to surrender your life and give it to him, all those things. If that's you right now, I want you to raise your hand, and I'm going to pray for you and lead you in a prayer. Is there anyone here? Just raise your hand. There's one, two. Anyone else? Raise it high so I can see it. Three. Anybody else? Anybody else here never received, want to receive that forgiveness? No, we don't talk anyone into the kingdom. We don't beg. We just offer just like Jesus offered. So what I want you to do now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to repeat after me. There's nothing magical about these words. He's looking at your heart. But if you say these words and you mean it in a prayer to him and they're sincere in your heart, he will answer that prayer. He will answer it. But you need to say it out loud, and you need to mean it from your heart. So repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I trust that you died for me, that you were buried, and you rose again bodily the third day. And I, re I repent of my sins. I ask you for forgiveness. I ask you for the free gift of eternal life. And I surrender my life to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these three that have prayed. I pray, Father, that you would make them into mighty saints of yours, mighty men and women of God. I pray, Father, that they would be greatly used by you. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Protect them against the enemy, God. And I pray that they would grow so much, Lord, and they would explore who you are and have a supernatural hunger for you. I just thank you for saving them. Thank you that they didn't have to pay for it. Thank you that they could just receive it as a gift. I thank you for, for all that you're going to do through their lives. And wherever you send them to be a part of some spiritual family, some church, if that's here, help us to love them and care for them and help them grow. But if it's somewhere else, help the same thing happen in another place as well. We thank you for their lives in Jesus' name. Amen.